Chapter Four, Part Two, Book One, of Confession of a Child of the Century. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Confession of a Child of the Century by Alfred de Musset, translated by Kendall Warren. Book One, Part Two, Chapter Four. All there was of good in that, supposing there was some good in it, was that false pleasures were the seeds of sorrow and of bitterness which fatigued me to the point of exhaustion. Such are the simple words spoken with reference to his youth by that man who was the most a man of any who have lived, St. Augustine. Of those who have done as I, few would say those words, all have them in their hearts. I have found no others in mine. Returning to Paris in the month of December, I passed the winter attending pleasure-parties, masquerades, suppers, rarely leaving Dejeuner, who was delighted with me. I was not with him. The more I went about, the more unhappy I became. It seemed to me, after a short enough time, that the world, which had at first appeared so strange, would tie me up, so to speak, at every step. Where I had expected to see a spectre, I discovered, upon closer inspection, a shadow. Desgenais asked what was the matter with me. "'And you?' I asked. "'What is the matter with you? You have lost some relative? Or do you suffer from some wound?' At times he seemed to understand me, and did not question me. We sat down before a table, and drank until we lost our heads. In the middle of the night we took horses, and rode ten or twelve leagues into the country. Returning we went to the bath, then to table, then to gambling, then to bed. And when I reached mine, I fell on my knees and wept. That was my evening prayer. Strange to say, I took pride in passing for what I was not. I boasted of being worse than I really was, and experienced a sort of melancholy pleasure in doing so. When I had actually done what I claimed, I felt nothing but ennui. But when I invented an account of some folly, some story of debauchery, or recital of an orgy with which I had nothing to do, it seemed to me that my heart was better satisfied, although I know not why. Whenever I joined a party of pleasure-seekers, and we visited some spot made sacred by tender associations, I became stupid, went off by myself looked gloomily at the trees and bushes as though I would like to crush them under my feet. Upon my return I would remain silent for hours. The baleful idea that truth is nudity beset me on every occasion. The world, I said to myself, is accustomed to call his disguise virtue, his chaplet religion, his flowing mantle convenience. Honor and morality are his chambermaids. He drinks in his wine the tears of the poor in spirit who believe in him. While the sun is high in the heavens he walks about with downcast eye. He goes to church, to the ball, to the assembly, and when evening has come he removes his mantle, and there appears a naked bacchant with hoofs of a goat. But such thoughts aroused a feeling of horror, for I felt that if the body was under the clothing the skeleton was under the body. Is it possible that that is all? I asked in spite of myself. Then I returned to the city. I saw a little girl take her mother's arm, and I became like a child. Although I had followed my friends into all manner of dissipation, 
I had no desire to resume my place in the world of society. The sight of women caused me intolerable pain. I could not touch a woman's hand without trembling. I had decided never to love again. Nevertheless, I returned from the ball one evening so sick at heart that I feared that it was love. I happened to have beside me at supper the most charming and the most distinguished woman whom it had ever been my good fortune to meet. When I closed my eyes to sleep I saw her image before me. I thought I was lost, and I at once resolved that I would avoid meeting her again. A sort of fever seized me, and I lay on my bed for fifteen days, repeating over and over the lightest words I had exchanged with her. As there is no spot on earth where one is so well known by his neighbors as at Paris, it was not long before people of my acquaintance who had seen me with Desgenais began to accuse me of being a great libertine, in that I admired the discernment of the world. In proportion, as I had passed for inexperienced and sensitive at the time of my rupture with my mistress, I was now considered insensible and hardened. Someone had just told me that it was clear I had never loved that woman, that I had doubtless merely played at love, thereby paying me a compliment which I really did not deserve. But the most of it was that I was so swollen with vanity that I was charmed with that view. My desire was to pass for blasé, even while I was filled with desires and my exalted imagination was carrying me beyond all limits. I began to say that I could not make any headway with the women. My head was filled with chimeras, which I preferred to realities. In short, my unique pleasure consisted in altering the nature of facts. If a thought were but extraordinary, if it shocked common sense, I became its ardent champion at the risk of advocating the most dangerous sentiments. My greatest fault was imitation of everything that struck me, not by its beauty, but by its strangeness, and not wishing to confess myself an imitator, I resorted to exaggeration in order to appear original. According to my idea nothing was good or even tolerable, nothing was worth the trouble of turning the head. And yet when I become warmed up in a discussion it seemed as if there was no expression in the French language violent enough to sustain my cause. But my warmth would subside as soon as my opponents ranged themselves on my side. It was a natural consequence of my conduct. Although disgusted with the life I was leading, I was unwilling to change it. Similiante a quella inferma che non può trovare posa insule ma con dara volte suo dolore scherma. Dante. Thus I tortured my mind to give it change, and I fell into all these vagaries in order to get out of myself. But while my vanity was thus occupied, my heart was suffering, so that there was always within me a man who laughed and a man who wept. It was a perpetual counterstroke between my head and my heart. My own mockeries frequently caused me great pain, and my deepest sorrows aroused a desire to burst into laughter. One day a man boasted of being proof against superstitious fears, in fact fear of every kind. His friends put a human skeleton in his bed, and then concealed themselves in an adjoining room to wait for his return. They did not hear any noise, but in the morning they found him dressed and sitting on the bed playing with the bones. He had lost his reason. There would be in me something that resembled that man, but for the fact that my favorite bones were those of a well-beloved skeleton, 
They were the debris of my love, all that remained of the past. But it must not be supposed that there were no good moments in all this disorder. Among de Genese's companions were several young men of distinction, a number of artists. We sometimes passed together delightful evenings under pretext of being libertines. One of them was infatuated with a beautiful singer who charmed us with her fresh and melancholy voice. How many times we sat listening while supper was served and waiting! How many times, when the flagons had been emptied, one of us held a volume of Lamartine and read in a voice choked by emotion! Every other thought disappeared. The hours passed by unheeded. What strange libertines we were! We did not speak a word, and there were tears in our eyes. Dijeuner, especially, habitually the coldest and driest of men, was inexplicable on such occasions. He delivered himself of such extraordinary sentiments that he might have been considered a poet in delirium. But after these effusions he would be seized with furious joy. He would break everything within reach when warmed by wine. The genius of destruction stalked forth armed to the teeth. I have seen him pick up a chair and hurl it through a closed window. I could not help making a study of that singular man. He appeared to me the marked type of a class which ought to exist somewhere, but which was unknown to me. One could never tell whether his outbursts were the despair of a man sick of life, or the whim of a spoiled child. During the fete, in particular, he was in such a state of nervous excitation that he acted like a schoolboy. He persuaded me to go out on foot with him one day, muffled in grotesque costumes, with masks and instruments of music. We promenaded gravely all night, in the midst of a most frightful din of horrible sounds. We found a driver asleep on his box and unhitched his horses. Then pretending we had just come from the ball, set up a great cry. The coachman started up, cracked his whip, and his horses started off on a trot, leaving him seated on the box. The same evening we passed through the Champs-Élysées. Dejeuner, seeing another carriage passing, stopped it after the manner of a highwayman. He intimidated the coachman by threats, and forced him to climb down and lie flat on his stomach. He then opened the carriage door, and found within a young man and lady motionless with fright. Whispering to me to imitate him, we began to enter one door and go out the other so that in the obscurity the poor young people thought they saw a procession of bandits going through their carriage. As I understand it, the men who say that the world gives experience ought to be astonished if they are believed. The world is merely a number of whirlpools, each one whirling independent of the others. They float about in groups like flocks of birds. There is no resemblance between the different quarters of the same city, and the denizen of the Chausée d'Antin has as much to learn at Marais as at Lisbon. It is true that these whirlpools are traversed, and have been since the beginning of the world, by seven personages who are always the same. The first is called hope, the second conscience, the third opinion, the fourth desire, the fifth sorrow, the sixth pride, and the seventh man. We were therefore, my companions and I, a flock of birds and we remained together until springtime, sometimes singing, sometimes flying. But, the reader objects, where are the women in all this? I see nothing of debauchery here. 
Oh, creatures who bear the name of women and who have passed like dreams through a life that was itself a dream, what shall I say of you? Where there is no shadow of hope can there be memory? Where shall I seek for memory's meed? What is there more dumb in human memory? What is there more completely forgotten than you? If I must speak of women, I will mention two. Here is one of them. I ask what would be expected of a poor sewing-girl, young and pretty, about eighteen, with a romantic affair on her hands that is purely a question of love, with little knowledge of life and no idea of morals, eternally sewing near a window before which processions were not allowed to pass by order of the police, but near which a dozen women prowled who were licensed and recognized by these same police. What could you expect of her, when after having tired her hands and eyes all day long on a dress or a hat, she leans out of that window as night falls? That dress she has sewed, that hat she has trimmed with her poor and honest hands in order to earn a supper for the household, she sees passing along the street on the head or on the body of a public woman. Thirty times a day a hired carriage stops before the door, and there steps out a prostitute numbered as is the hack in which she rides, who stands before a glass and primps, taking off and putting on the results of many days' work on the part of the poor girl who watches her. She sees that woman draw from her pocket six pieces of gold, she who has but one a week. She looks at her feet and her head, she examines her dress, and eyes her as she steps into her carriage. And then what could you expect, when night has fallen, after a day when work has been scarce, when her mother is sick, she opens her door, stretches out her hand, and stops a passer-by. Such was the story of a girl I have known. She could play the piano, knew something of accounts, a little designing, even a little history and grammar, and thus a little of everything. How many times have I regarded with poignant compassion that sad sketch made by nature and mutilated by society? How many times have I followed in the darkness the pale and vacillating gleam of a spark flickering in abortive life? How many times have I tried to revive that fire that smoldered under those ashes? Alas! Her long hair was the color of ashes, and we called her Cendrillon. I was not rich enough to help her. Degenet, at my request, interested himself in the poor creature. He made her learn over again all of which she had a slight knowledge. But she could make no appreciable progress. When her teacher left her she would fold her arms and for hours look silently across the public square. What days! What misery! One day I threatened that if she did not work she should have no money. She silently resumed her task, and I learned that she stole out of the house a few minutes later. Where did she go? God knows. Before she left I asked her to embroider a purse for me. I still have that sad relic. It hangs in my room, a monument of the ruin that is wrought here below. But here is another case. It was about ten in the evening when, after a riotous day, we repaired to Dejeuner, who had left us some hours before to make his preparations. The orchestra was ready, and the room filled when we arrived. Most of the dancers were girls from the theatres. As soon as we entered I plunged into the giddy whirl of the waltz. That delightful exercise has always been dear to me. I know of nothing more beautiful, more worthy of a beautiful woman, and a young man. 
All dances compared with the waltz are but insipid conventions or pretexts for insignificant converse. It is truly to possess a woman, in a certain sense, to hold her for a half-hour in your arms, and to draw her on in the dance, palpitating in spite of herself, in such a way that it cannot be positively asserted whether she is being protected or seduced. Some deliver themselves up to the pleasure with such modest voluptuousness, with such sweet and pure abandon, that one does not know whether he experiences desire or fear, and whether, if pressed to the heart, they would faint or break in pieces like the rose. Germany, where that dance was invented, is surely the land of love. I held in my arms a superb danseuse from an Italian theatre who had come to Paris for the carnival. She wore the costume of a bacchante, with a dress of panther's skin. Never have I seen anything so languishing as that creature. She was tall and slender, and while dancing with extreme rapidity had the appearance of allowing herself to be led. To see her one would think that she would tire her partner, but such was not the case, for she moved as though by enchantment. On her bosom rested an enormous bouquet, the perfume of which intoxicated me. She yielded to my encircling arms as does the Indian liana, with a gentleness so sweet and so sympathetic that I seemed surrounded with a perfumed veil of silk. At each turn there could be heard a light tinkling from her metal girdle. She moved so gracefully that I thought I beheld a beautiful star, and her smile was that of a fairy about to vanish from human sight. The tender and voluptuous music of the dance seemed to come from her lips, while her head, covered with a wilderness of black tresses, bent backward as though her neck was too slender to support its weight. When the waltz was over I threw myself on a chair. My heart beat wildly. Oh, heaven, I murmured. How can it be possible? Oh, superb monster! Oh, beautiful reptile! How you writhe! How you coil in and out, sweet adder! with supple and spotted skin. Thy cousin the serpent has taught thee to coil about the tree of life, holding between thy lips the apple of temptation. O oh, Melusina, Melusina, the hearts of men are thine. You know it well, enchantress, with your soft languor that seems to suspect nothing. You know very well that you ruin, that you destroy. You know that he who touches you will suffer. You know that he dies who basks in your smile, who breathes the perfume of your flowers and comes under the magic influence of your charms. That is why you abandon yourself so freely. That is why your smile is so sweet, your flowers so fresh. That is why you so gently place your arms on our shoulders. Oh, heaven! What is your will with us? Professor Hall has said a terrible thing. Woman is the nervous part of humanity, man the muscular. Humboldt himself, that serious thinker, has said that an invisible atmosphere surrounds the human nerves. I do not quote the dreamers who watch the flight of Spallanzani's bat, and who think they have found a sixth sense in nature. Such as nature is, her mysteries are terrible enough, her powers mighty enough, that nature which creates us mocks at us and kills us without deepening the shadows that surround us. But where is the man who has lived who will deny woman's power over us, if he has ever taken leave of a beautiful dancer with trembling hands, if he has ever felt that indefinable enervating magnetism which, in the midst of the dance, 
under the influence of the sound of music, and the warmth that makes all else seem cold, that comes from a young woman, that electrifies her and leaps from her to him as the perfume of aloes from the swinging censer. I was struck with stupor. I was familiar with a certain sensation similar to drunkenness, which characterizes love. I knew that it was the aureole which crowned the well-beloved. But that she should excite such heart-throbs, that she should evoke such phantoms with nothing but her beauty, her flowers, her motley costume, and a certain trick of turning she had learned from some Mary Andrew, and that, without a word, without a thought, without even appearing to know it. What was chaos if it required seven days to transform it? It was not love, however, that I felt, and I do not know how to describe it unless I call it thirst. For the first time I felt vibrating in my body a chord that was not attuned to my heart. The sight of that beautiful animal had aroused a responsive roar from another animal in my bowels. I felt sure I would never tell that woman that I loved her, or that she pleased me, or even that she was beautiful. There was nothing on my lips but a desire to kiss her, and say to her, Make a girdle of those listless arms and lean that head on my breast. Place that sweet smile on my lips. My body loved hers. I was under the influence of beauty as of wine. Dejeuner passed and asked what I was doing there. Who is that woman? I asked. What woman? Of whom do you speak? I took his arm and led him into the hall. The Italian saw us coming and smiled. I stopped and stepped back. Ah, said Dejeuner. You have danced with Marco? Who is Marco? I asked. Why, that idle creature who is laughing over there, does she please you? No, I replied. I have waltzed with her and wanted to know her name. I have no further interest in her. Shame led me to speak thus, but when Dejeuner turned away, I followed him. You are very prompt, he said. Marco is no ordinary woman. She was almost the wife of Monsieur de Blanc ambassador to milan one of his friends brought her here yet he added you may rest assured i shall speak to her we shall not allow you to die so long as there is any hope for you or any resource left untried it is possible that she will remain to supper he left me and i was alarmed to see him approach her but they were soon lost in the crowd is it possible i murmured have i come to this oh heavens is this what I am going to love? But after all, I thought, my senses have spoken, but not my heart. Thus I tried to calm myself. A few minutes later Dejeuner tapped me on the shoulder. We shall go to supper at once, said he. You will give your arm to Marco. She knows that she has pleased you, and it is all arranged. Listen, I said, I hardly know what I experienced. It seems to me I see limping Vulcan covering Venus with kisses, while his beard smokes with the fumes of the forge. He fixes his affrighted eyes on the dazzling skin of his prey. His happiness in the possession of his prize causes him to laugh for joy, and at the same time shudder with happiness. And then he remembers his father, Jupiter, who is seated up on high among the gods. Dejeuner looked at me, but made no reply. Taking me by the arm, he led me away. "'I am tired,' he said, "'and I am sad. This noise wearies me. Let us go to supper. That will refresh us.' 
The supper was splendid, but I could not touch it. "'What is the matter with you?' asked Marco. But I sat like a statue, making no reply and looking at her from head to foot with amazement. She began to laugh, and Desgenais, who could see us from his table, joined her. Before her was a large crystal glass cut in the shape of a chalice, which reflected the glittering lights on its thousand sparkling facets, shining like the prism and revealing the seven colors of the rainbow. She listlessly extended her arm and filled it to the brim with Cyprian and a sweetened oriental wine which I afterward found so bitter on the deserted Lido. Here, she said, presenting it to me. Per voi, bambino mio. For you and for me, I said, presenting her my glass in turn. She moistened her lips while I emptied my glass, unable to conceal the sadness she seemed to read in my eyes. Is it not good? she asked. No, I replied. Perhaps your head aches? No. Or you are tired? No. Ah! Then it is the ennui of love? With these words she became serious, for in spite of herself, in speaking of love, her Italian heart beat the faster. A scene of folly ensued. Heads were becoming heated, cheeks were assuming that purple hue with which wine colors the face as though to prevent shame from appearing there. A confused murmur like to that of a rising sea could be heard all over the room. Here and there eyes would become inflamed, then fixed and empty. I know not what wind stirred above this drunkenness. A woman rose, as in a tranquil sea, the first wave that feels the tempest's breath, and rises to announce it. She makes a sign with her hand to command silence, empties her glass at a gulp, and with the same movement undoes her hair, which falls in shining tresses over her shoulders. She opens her mouth, as though to start a drinking song. Her eyes were half closed. She breathed with an effort. Twice a harsh sound came from her throat. A mortal pallor overspread her features, and she dropped into her chair. Then came an uproar which lasted an hour. It was impossible to distinguish anything, either laughter, songs, or cries. "'What do you think of it?' asked Desgenais. "'Nothing,' I replied. "'I have stopped my ears and am looking at it.' In the midst of that bacchanal the beautiful Marco remained mute, drinking nothing and leaning quietly on her bare arm. She seemed neither astonished nor affected by it. "'Do you not wish to do as they?' I asked. "'You have just offered me Cyprian wine. Why do you not drink some yourself?' With these words I poured out a large glass full to the brim. She raised it to her lips, and then placed it on the table and resumed her listless attitude. The more I studied that Marco, the more singular she appeared. She took pleasure in nothing and did not seem to be annoyed by anything. It appeared as difficult to anger her as to please her. She did what was asked of her, but no more. I thought of the genius of eternal repose, and I imagined that if that pale statue should become somnambulant, it would resemble Marco. "'Are you good or bad?' I asked. "'Are you sad or gay? Are you loved? Do you wish to be loved? Are you fond of money, of pleasure, of what? Horses, the country, balls? What pleases you?' Of what are you dreaming?" To all these questions the same smile on her part, a smile that expressed neither joy nor sorrow, but which seemed to say, What does it matter, and nothing more? I held my lips to hers. She gave me a listless kiss, and then passed her handkerchief over her mouth. 
Marco, I said, woe to him who loves you. She turned her dark eyes on me, then turned them upward, and raising her finger with that Italian gesture which cannot be imitated, she pronounced that characteristic feminine word of her country. Forse. And then dessert was served. Some of the party had departed, some were smoking, others gambling, and a few still at table. Some of the women danced, others slept. The orchestra returned. The candles paled and others were lighted. I recalled a supper of Petronius, where the lights went out around the drunken masters, and the slaves entered and stole the silver. All the while songs were being sung in various parts of the room, and three Englishmen, three of those gloomy figures for whom the continent is a hospital, kept up a most sinister ballad that must have been born of the fogs of their marshes. "'Come,' I said to Marco, "'let us go.' She arose and took my arm. "'Tomorrow!' cried Desgenais to me, as we left the hall. When approaching Marco's house, my heart beat violently, and I could not speak. I could not understand such a woman. She seemed to experience neither desire nor disgust, and could think of nothing but the fact that my hand was trembling and hers motionless. Her room was, like her, sombre and voluptuous. It was dimly lighted by an alabaster lamp. The chairs and sofa were as soft as beds, and there was everywhere suggestion of down and silk. Upon entering I was struck with the strong odor of Turkish pastilles, not such as are sold here on the streets, but those of Constantinople, which are more nervous and more dangerous. She rang and a maid appeared. She entered an alcove without a word, and a few minutes later I saw her leaning on her elbow, in her habitual attitude of nonchalance. I stood looking at her. Strange to say, the more I admired her, the more beautiful I found her, the more rapidly I felt my desires subside. I do not know whether it was some magnetic influence or her silence and listlessness. I lay down on a sofa opposite the alcove, and the coldness of death settled on my soul. The pulsation of the blood in the arteries is a sort of clock, the ticking of which can be heard only at night. Man abandoned by exterior objects, falls back upon himself. He hears himself live. In spite of my fatigue I could not close my eyes. Those of Marco were fixed on me. We looked at each other in silence, gently, so to speak. "'What are you doing there?' she asked. She heaved a gentle sigh that was almost a plaint. I turned my head and saw that first gleams of morning light were shining through the window. I arose and opened the window. A bright light penetrated every corner of the room. The sky was clear. I motioned to her to wait. Considerations of prudence had led her to choose an apartment some distance from the centre of the city. As a cork held under water seems restless under the hand which holds it, and slips through the fingers to rise to the surface, thus there stirred in me a sentiment that I could neither overcome nor escape. The garden of the Luxembourg made my heart leap and banished every other thought. How many times had I stretched out on one of those little mounds, a sort of sylvan school, while I read in the cool shade some book filled with foolish poetry? For such, alas, were the debauches of my childhood. I saw many souvenirs of the past among those leafless trees and faded lawns. There, when ten years of age I had walked with my brother and my tutor, throwing bits of bread to some of the poor benumbed birds, there, Seated under a tree I had watched a group of little girls as they danced. 
I felt my heart beat in unison with the refrain of their childish song. There, returning from school, I had followed a thousand times the same path, lost in contemplation of some verse of Virgil, and kicking the pebbles at my feet. Oh, my childhood! You are there, I cried. Oh, heaven, now I am here. I turned around. Marco was asleep. The lamp had gone out. The light of day had changed the aspect of the room. The hangings, which had at first appeared blue, were now a faded yellow, and Marco, the beautiful statue, was livid as death. I shuddered in spite of myself. I looked at the alcove, then at the garden. My head became drowsy and fell upon my breast. I sat down before an open secretary near one of the windows. A piece of paper caught my eye. It was an open letter, and I looked at it mechanically. I read it several times before I thought what I was doing. Suddenly a gleam of intelligence came to me, although I could not understand everything. I picked up the paper and read what follows, written in an unskilled hand and filled with errors in spelling. She died yesterday. She began to fail at twelve the night before. She called me and said, Lewison, I am going to join my companion. Go to the closet and take down the cloth that hangs on a nail. It is the mate of the other. I fell on my knees and wept, but she took my hand and said, Do not weep, do not weep, and she heaved such a sigh. The rest was torn. I cannot describe the impression that sad letter made on me. I turned it over and saw on the other side Marco's address and the date, that of the evening previous. Is she dead? Who is dead? I cried, going to the alcove. Dead? Who? Marco opened her eyes. She saw me with the letter in my hand. It is my mother, she said, who is dead. You are not coming? As she spoke, she extended her hand. Silence, I said. Sleep and leave me to myself. She turned over and went to sleep. I looked at her for some time to assure myself that she would not hear me, and then quietly left the house. End of chapter 4, part 2, book 1 Recording by Bill Borst